So this morning we learned about humility, how key uh, characteristic humility is. It's not just key, it's foundational, and you can't even enter the kingdom, Jesus says, without humility. You must become as a child. And tonight in 1 Kings chapter 12, we're going to witness in Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the exact opposite of humility. We're going to have a good front row seat vantage point on a man with a large ego and the devastating consequences. But I want to remind you that we have had an idea of what was going to happen before Solomon died and Rehoboam came to the throne because the Lord had already raised up adversaries to Solomon in judgment upon Solomon and Israel's idolatry. And God had already sent a prophet and sent to Jeroboam, uh, a man that was in Solomon's kingdom, to take ten of the tribes away. So we'll see tonight that we'll see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility once again in the scriptures. Which is it? God's sovereignty or man's responsibility? Yes. Yes. That's right. Both. They are both there. So I'm going to read 1 Kings chapter 12 beginning in verse 1 and I will read through verse 24 tonight. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard of it he was living in Egypt for he as was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served with his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? They spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may answer this people who you have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, 
My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord, that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Jeroboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam, I'm sorry, Rehoboam reigned over them. King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. Now when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, this is another portion of your word from a period of Israel's history that is ancient to us and strange. We pray that tonight in these moments we have to reflect upon this portion of your word that you would grant us wisdom, understanding, and that we would know you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So I briefly want to just recount, in case you get a little bit lost between the Rehoboams and the Jeroboams and the various names, which is going to happen, especially on a Sunday evening, um, perhaps when you're a little bit sleepy and a little bit tired. And so what we have here is we have, remember, King Solomon was blessed of the Lord immensely, and yet he became proud. He added to uh, his, himself, many, many wives, who we learned last chapter, led his heart astray. Even his old age, he turned from following the Lord. And, and as judgment upon Jer- Solomon, God sent a prophet to this man named Jeroboam and told Jeroboam that as judgment upon Solomon's kingdom, God was going to basically hand into this man hands, ten of the tribes, the ten northern tribes. And so Solomon dies. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 
obviously is ascending to the throne. And all Israel, chapter 12, verse 1, assembles to come and with the new guy, the, new, the king's son, to, to appeal to him that his father has been a bit overbearing. And they are resentful of this with all of his projects, with all of his building projects, with all of his wealth and so forth. Apparently, he had taxed the people quite heavily and there were grumblings stirring in the kingdom. And again, we can wonder if this is not merely uh, the fact of a lack of wisdom on Solomon's part, but God actually, as judgment upon Solomon's idolatry and the idolatry of Israel, God actually using secondary causes to stir up how he does this. He's sovereign over all things. But to inflict judgment upon the nation, there is revolts increasingly in the hearts of these ten tribes. So all Israel comes and they appeal to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, you know, in so many words, hey, can you lighten our load a little bit? We'll serve you, but, but your father placed a heavy yoke on us. Rehoboam goes to the older counselors, the, the ones who by now are, are older men who were with his father, and they are wizened by life. They, they've been through a scuffle or two. They've lived life, and they see a potential for a revolt, and they give some wise words to Rehoboam. If, if you listen to these people, they'll serve you. But Rehoboam apparently doesn't want to follow that counsel. He has some, some pals. He has some young, some young buddies that he's grown up with in the palace and maybe have been in school with him. And um, they know not so much. They don't know anything except the peace and the unity and the dominance and the vast riches of Solomon's kingdom and empire. And, and they are rather full of themselves. They have very little idea of, of the foolishness of what they are saying. And, and really what they advise, Rehoboam is not only foolish, but it's, it's actually quite crass. Um, in verse 10, they, the, the Bible sometimes is a little more, um, records uh, the, the wicked uh, thoughts and words of men a little more in detail than sometimes we would like. But basically here they're they're telling Rehoboam that uh, you, need to, you need to tell them in no uncertain terms that, um, that you are a, a, a more of a man, so to speak, than your father. This is, this is machismo. This is, uh, this is ruling. This is lording it over. This is, this is show strength and don't show any kindness or grace just rule by sheer force. Well, their counsel is foolish, and the king listened, Rehoboam listens to them. He assembles the people, and he passes along. He, he follows the advice of his comrades, and it is disaster. Far from intimidating anybody, it, it just fires up passions and the people revolt they they they'll have none of it uh they they are they're not going to listen to this young upstart they 
are rebellious. And what we learn in verse 15, however, we can, we can look at lessons about whether it was wise or unwise and leadership and so forth. But we're told in verse 15 that whatever we make of, of the foolish decision of Rehoboam and his, his youthful friends, that this was from the Lord. That overall, this, these events were from the Lord. Why? That he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah, the Shilohnote, to Jeroboam. Now, now, what did he say again? What was it that he had said? Well, he had said, God had said back in chapter 11, if you want to turn there with me for a moment, Verse 31, chapter 11, verse 31. The prophet sent by God had said to this man, Jeroboam, after the prophet had torn up a new coat, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. Verse 33, why? Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chamash, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand. This is of the Lord. Wow. Whatever we make of Rehoboam, and of course we're, the, the text tells us that Rehoboam is foolish. He's an arrogant fool. His, his friends are politically fools. And more than that, they're, they're crass, godless men, apparently. And yet, you can try to give Rehoboam all the advice, all the counsel... You could try to send him to all the this youth seminars you wanted. And by this point, it's too late. The word of the Lord has been given. The will of the Lord has been revealed. And it is unfolding. And it is a solemn, sobering thing to witness it. That God can even use sinful men for his solemn, holy purposes. This is from the Lord, verse 15. The dominance of this section is sovereignty. And again, I remind you that big picture, big perspective in the biblical story line, this account, 1 Kings along with 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, is given with the destruction, the eventual destruction of Jerusalem and exile of Judah to Babylon, it's looking back and essentially saying, how did, you, how did we get here? How do you start with God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And then you have David and God's promise, and you have David and Goliath, and everything's going you know, quite well, and, and, and Solomon, the kingdom's flourishing, and, and it seems like the promises are coming true, and then you get to the point after a few hundred years where, where the ten northern tribes are... are exiles are by the are taken away hauled off by the Assyrians and even Jerusalem the southern tribe of Judah is exiled and even Jerusalem is burned walls taken down temple destroyed 
How do you get there? And from a human perspective, the answer of the scriptures is the idolatry, the idolatry of God's people. It's rather sobering. It's, it's the idolatry of God's people. It's because they turned away from the Lord and what was expedient. And again, it's, it's very easy for us from this perspective to say, wow, they, they worshiped Chamash. You know, it was a God that you offered, you, you put babies and you offered up sacrifices. It's awful. I, we, from our perspective, we look back and say, how, how could they... How could they worship Ashtoreth and all these, these vile deities? But of course, in that time and in that day, it was the thing to do. Everybody was worshiping Chamash and Ashtoreth, and, and uh, it was popular, and it was expedient. And, and if you're going to have good relations with your neighbors, you've know, you got to build cultural bridges, we hear about. You've got to understand the world, we hear about. Well, God looks on it as apostasy, and he is still a jealous God and a consuming fire. And he will fulfill his word, but he will also guard his glory. And so, yes, the ultimate division, the division of the nation, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is attributable, yes, to the sins of God's people, but also the sovereign judgment of God. God is over this. He is sovereign over the judgment of Israel and Judah. And chapter 12, verse 15, makes that absolutely clear. And in case there's any doubt, before I, in case I miss it, at the end, the last verse of the section we read tonight, verse 24, restates it. For this thing is, has come from me, says the Lord, This thing has come from me. God owns it. Why did the ten northern tribes split off? Rehoboam's foolishness, yes. Solomon's idolatry, yes. But in view of that, the answer is God did it. Not in a way so that he is responsible for any sin, but in terms of judgment, he, in his sovereignty, brought this about. Wow. That's, that's fearful that God is able to do that, to be sovereign even over the ungodly passions of the human heart. Well, verse 16 tells us how Israel responded to Rehoboam when he was foolish in passing along the counsel of his buddies. They responded, what portion do we have in David We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. This is very sad. We remember the high days of David's kingdom. We we remember the the moments when it was exciting and and David was being raised up by God and and he was the champion and, and God blessed David and established the kingdom and brought the tribes together under his under his reign, and then God gave to David the covenant. And here we have ten of the tribes saying, Psh, we're done with David and the house of David, which of course is a problem 
because God made a specific covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with David and David's house. There is no hope apart for Israel or anyone else apart from David and David's house. David's seed, David's inherent uh, descendant who is ultimately Jesus Christ. So there's no hope apart from David's house. And here we have some of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob separating from the house, the house of David, that is the only hope for Israel. Not good. So they depart from their tents. Rehoboam is so full of himself, has such a big head, that he can't take a hint. Uh, He's dumb. I mean, he's he's just plain dumb. Uh, he, he, you know, you have a whole group of people rebelling against you, and you're so, you've apparently been so, I don't know, uh, coddled, so ignorant of political realities that he thinks, oh, I'll just send one of my chief captains or, or the man Adoram who was over the force later I'll send him up there and he'll put them all in order well they take him and probably the guys the poor guys that were with him and they kill him they stone him to death and they enjoy tossing every stone they are not happy and finally it takes a little while but after his chief man as chief over the forced labor is stoned by these people he finally gets a hint and uh, jumps in his new gold chariot probably and uh, flees to Jerusalem oh yeah doesn't say anything about his buddies wonder where they are they apparently weren't with him when he was uh, (laughs) facing the the ten tribes of Israel and so verse 19 very tragic verse. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Continues to this day. The implications. More about that in a moment. Well, once Rehoboam gets back to Jerusalem, he's fired up. He... he, he ran for his life, but now he's back in Jerusalem. He's reminded, he looks at all of the, the wonderful architecture that Solomon built and the gold shields and, and the soldiers and the army and all that. And he's thinking, I'm Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. I have all this. I tell you what, we're going to go up there and teach these northern country tribes a lesson in verses 22 to 24, though, are, are some of the, I, I don't want to say strange, because I don't want to ever say any of God's word is strange, but it's just peculiar. Fascinating, maybe, is a better word. So Rehoboam has rejected, apparently, the Lord. He, he, he probably, he's an idolatry just like his father. He's taken the counsel of fools, his friends, and yet, verse 22 says, The word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, 
Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. And then, then these astounding words. So they listened to the word of the Lord. What? <laughs> now? <laughs> um, wow! They, they listened to that word and they returned and went to their way according to the word of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord. And so you see that God in his sovereignty determined this judgment. He prophesied all the way back in chapter 11 through the prophet Ahijah that this would take place. He determined that it shall be so. Events unfold, and even an army, a huge army of 180,000 men. I mean, that, that takes a little while to assemble. That's even bigger than what Putin had. I mean, that's not just, you know, in an afternoon, hey, let's get some guys together and go up and fight them. I mean, this is, this is in the works. This is, they're actually counting. What do we have for resources? They're, they're mustering forces, and then the word of God comes. And they listened. Why did they listen? Well, I, we don't know. Except that it was the will of the Lord. And his word is that kind of powerful. It will accomplish that for which he sent it. Sometimes in, in wonderfully encouraging ways, but sometimes in very frightening, sobering ways. God did spare a bloodbath on this occasion. But it was more than sparing a bloodbath. It was to ensure that what he had determined as a judgment would come pass, come to pass. In other words, that there would be a division in judgment between the ten tribes and Judah and the south. And so it's a sobering chapter. It's a sad chapter. It's, it is the occasion when God's people were split when the division occurred, when the nation of Israel was divided. And so it gets confusing for us moving forward. You know, when we talk about Israel, is it just the 10 northern tribes, the, the northern kingdom that's called Israel? Or are we talking about the kingdom of Judah in the south, who are also technically part of Israel? It gets all very confusing for us from here forward, through First Kings, Second Kings, through all the prophets. But more than confusing, it's, it's tragic, it's sad, because we'll learn... In chapter 12, that in the northern tribes, in order to establish and separate from Judah, they established their own idolatrous worship. We'll look more at that next Sunday, Lord willing. It's a mess, though. It's a sad occasion. We see here in this chapter the sovereignty of God. And it is, in this case, sobering that his word comes to pass in such a frightening way. And it is a mess. It is sad. Before I, I make one final closing comment on an encouraging note about this chapter and the word of the Lord, I, I do want to read from this very helpful commentary, Dale Ralph Davis. I don't typically read 
uh, from a lot of commentaries, but for those of you who are, are kind of new, um, well over a year ago, I handed out this commentary for our evening members, and I can probably find a few extra copies. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis is a th- pastor, theologian, preacher, and, and he writes, in, in my opinion, some of the best commentaries, most enjoyable to read. And he's very insightful in this chapter. I wanted to just read a unique insight I thought it would be very pastorally helpful to us tonight. It's, it's tragic, chapter 12. It's, it's a mess. It's sad. It's the people of God are divided. The ten northern tribes are off on their own. And Dale Ralph Davis, after noting the sovereignty of God, he says, are there... He's pointing out an application. Is there perhaps a proper point of counsel from verses 21 to 24 for Christ's people? Are there some times, says Davis, when we should acquiesce to our mucked-up circumstances or resign ourselves to the hard providences the Lord has imposed? In other words, he's saying, are, are there times when we should just come to terms with this is the way it is. This, is. this is a consequence of our sin or of circumstances outside of our control. When we just come to terms with the sovereignty of God, we don't know understand why he's working. Well, he says, that's not a welcome word to contemporary men and women, at least here in the West. For some reason, he says, we think there must be some way to fix everything, a band-aid for every dilemma. But most sinful and thoughtful believers know that sometimes their choices, their folly, their bullheadedness, or their hard-heartedness have landed them in a network of circumstances they simply can't undo. Their lives are riddled with gaping cracks that can't be caulked or with irreversible consequences that can't be righted. What can one do but listen to the word of the Lord at that point and go on living in the kingdom as grace enables us to do? He he closes with a question. Is that mere weakness, or is it finally wisdom? I, I, I found that wise because I grew up I grew up in a nation (laughs) a blessed nation and in a time like you when we tend to think we can just about fix everything there's a counseling session for that there's a book for that there's a conference for that there's a man or a woman for that this can be fixed this can be righted what I've found living the years that I have, is that there are some situations, both in my own life, but in the lives of others as well, where there is, under the sovereign reign of God on high, there are the accumulation of sinful decisions or foolish decisions, and there's a reaping of consequences and circumstances that that are so complex and and overlapped and intertwined that, no, there is no way you can fix it. Does that sound like heresy? 
God can fix anything. That's we're clear about that. But think of it. After the division of the kingdom, was the call for godly men and women to try to fix it? Or to quiet themselves before the living God and to live out godly lives in hope and fear of God? That helps me because I, I, I want to fix I, I want to fix everything. I, I you know I, I, I'd like to see this happen or that happen or well, I, I, that's not in my power. I live in a broken world. I live in a time when the church is at large is very broken. I don't know that God's calling us to put everything back together, but but he is calling us to be faithful. And just perhaps maybe in his time, there could be a revival when he, those are times when he, he does seem to right a lot of wrongs and put things back together. But I just, I so appreciated that word. I want to close with one final encouraging thought. We've seen in chapter 12 of 1 Kings the the reality that what God says God does even if it is judgment for the unfaithfulness of his people it's carried through his word carries the day his word ultimately carries the day not even the stupidity and foolishness of sinful men that's sobering and that's frightening but it's also very very encouraging we're going to see this theme again and again because what God says shall take place, shall take place. Which means, for example, that if he were to say, perchance, that one day he's actually going to put together again the ten tribes in the north with Judah in the south, just, just if he were to say that, that if he were to say that, it actually would come to pass. Because what he says, he does. What he says shall come to pass, comes to pass. You think of the audacity, that that would would be an audacious claim. And yet, that's exactly what we find in Jeremiah. Chapter 33 Verse 23, this is hundreds of years after the division of Israel and Judah. This is after not only the split, this is after the ten northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel has been hauled off by the Assyrians. They basically don't exist at this point for all intents and purposes. And to this day, you, you can't, you can't, we can't, Say, oh, there's a, um, there's an Ephraimite. There's an there's an Asherite. We, we we can't do that. God knows. But look what God says. This is this is after the split, after the judgment and exile of the ten northern tribes, and the word of the Lord, verse twenty three, Jeremiah thirty three, came to Jeremiah saying, 
Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose? That's the northern, ten northern tribes, and then Judah. That's the king of Israel in the north, king of Judah in the south. The two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them. Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant for day and night stand not in the fixed pattern of the heavens and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. The Lord's going to restore Israel and Judah. How do I know that? Seen the moon lately? Still shining? Yeah? Hmm. Sun? Is it coming up? Hmm. They're still there. And his promise will stand, mark it. Because he can do what he wants, when he wants. And he does it by his almighty, powerful word, which is a wonderful comfort to us. That all that God has promised to his people, Israel and Judah, to we who are believers in Jesus Christ, grafted into the people of God, that all his promises will come to pass. All of them. The ones that are sobering, but also the ones that are wonderfully joyful. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for the lesson of your holiness, and we are sobered, frightened by the reality that we too have idolatrous hearts that could turn from you, and that grieves us. We recognize not just out there in the world or in the church at large, but in here in our hearts. There's just a continual pull aided by our enemy, Satan, to tempt us to to put our trust in lesser things, to give our worship and our praise and our hearts to lesser things, other gods, as it were. And we pray you'd forgive us. We pray that your word would be honored among us and, and that you would have our heart. But we thank you tonight that not only is your word faithful in judgment, but that your word is faithful and that you will fulfill all your promises that you made to your servant David through all of your prophets, that your word will come to pass. And this is great cause for comfort tonight. We, we go to bed knowing that with all the mess that's going on in the world, that you are on your throne, that these events ultimately are according to your plan, and that by your grace, as we trust and follow Jesus, we will see all of your promises come to pass with great joy. In Jesus, we thank you. Amen.